Is the role of a pastor becoming obsolete? If we go back 1,000 years, a pastor, really a priest, would have been seen as a wizard of white magic, powerful enough to defeat the forces of black magic in the world. They were vampire slayers, cosmically powerful, with undeniable power in the public sphere, powerful enough even to threat kings. Fast forward 700 years later, and the pastor may not be seen as a powerful wizard anymore, but he is most likely the most educated person in your community, a dispenser of wisdom and respected well enough that if he told you you were a sinner in the hands of an angry God, you'd actually listen and change your life. But in our modern secular age, where most people don't really believe in an enchanted magical cosmos filled with divine action, and where spirituality is reduced to a private internal enterprise that you feel you can cultivate with mindfulness apps on your phone or taking a yoga class or reading a book on the Enneagram, what role is there left for a pastor in society? You're probably not even the most educated person in your church either. So what should you do? My guest today has written an excellent book on the challenges of ministry in the modern meaning crisis. He is Dr. Andrew Root, and his book is called The Pastor in a Secular Age, Ministry to People Who No Longer Need God. Dr. Root is a theology professor at Luther Seminary. He's earned his PhD from Princeton, as well as a master's in theology and a master's of divinity degree from Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm telling you, even if you're not a pastor and you have no interest in ever becoming one, well, this might help you understand why you might not have any interest in becoming one. But beyond that, I'm telling you, you still want to listen to today's conversation. There are so many profound insights that Andy brings up that I, I think it will be a real paradigm shifter for so many of you. All right, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dr. Andrew Root. Well, so great to be joined today by Dr. Andrew Root. Uh, Andy, I've been, a, I've been a huge fan of the Charles Taylor Secular Age Thesis, and um, in particular, because I've, I've spent my whole life in Protestant contexts. Uh, James K.A. Smith has been particularly helpful in translating Taylor's stuff to to more Protestant context. So when I came across your book, I actually think it was, you know, uh, just an Amazon suggested recommendation. Oh. So God bless capitalism. Thanks, Jeff Bezos. I was like, oh, you know, this is interesting. Read the description, took a flyer on it. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was worth, worth taking a risk on. And, you know, I've been in ministry, vocational ministry for 15 years in a variety of denominational contexts. I'm a pastor. And right when I got into the first few opening pages of your book, The Pastor in a Secular Age, I was I was totally sold. And I, I want to start our discussion today by having you unpack a couple of these lines that I was like, golly, I think he just put into words um, what I have struggled to vocalize. But uh, either this is in the introduction or in the first chapter of your book, you write this, quote, the pastor can feel like an odd person living an embarrassingly outdated vocation. At its worst, it can feel like being a full-time employee of the Renaissance Festival, 
playing a part from an old world that people at times, for example, Christmas and Easter, appreciate, but most often find unnecessary. The pastor either becomes the guardian and custodian of declining religion or needs to reinvent himself or herself as a religious entrepreneur, connecting busy, disinterested people with the programs and products of a church. <laughs> I, I was like, man, I th- that is what I feel like I have felt. I'll confess. I'm not going to turn you into my therapist here, <laughs> but I confess that that gave words to this deep feeling of malaise that I have even wrestled with in the 15 years I've been doing this. So could you unpack, I just want to start with maybe having you unpack a little bit of what you meant when you wrote that and uh, flesh out maybe some of the, uh, perhaps some of the influences and experiences that you had that led you down this train of thought. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, first of all, thanks for, for liking the line. That's always, uh, you know, it's always both an embarrassing thing and a very honoring thing to have a a line of yours read back to you. So thanks for that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think influence wise, I mean, there's something that's just, it's just felt for me in the cultural context, you know, but I do think Taylor's really helpful in, um, both the ideas he presents, but how he kind of frames your mind in a certain way, you know? And so, there's this, there's this sense I think Taylor wants to get us to where in some ways it's a perspective that moves us beyond a little bit of the either or of culture war. You know what I mean? Like right. religion is just being taken down by secular culture or, um, or there's no such thing as secular culture. And we've always been religious. There's some kind of way that these things get pitted against each other. And he wants to help us kind of see that the way we feel this is a little bit different than the way we often talk about it. So, um, I hope in that line, there's a, a certain kind of appreciation for what the pastor does and a kind of recognition that the culture isn't like coming down or even directly confronting and saying like, there's no reason for pastors and pastors are stupid. Like at a certain level and even at a cognitive level, most people, even quite secular people would be like, yeah, pastors are good. And most pastors, I mean, there's some bad ones, mind you, but most of them are really good for society. And yet it does, I think, feel like, and I, my wife's an ordained pastor and, you know, I spend most of my days with pastors, but there's this kind of sense of, it just feels like something is slipping in the wheels here. Like, you know, there's just, it's hard to gain traction and particularly with kind of upwardly mobile middle-class people. Like they like you, they kind of are interested in what you do and they find it fun or fun isn't the right word, but you know, they find it, you know, worth a cup of coffee and talking about some strange thing you do, you know, (laughs) how you're with people when they die or, you know, um, what's it like to stand up in front of people and give a sermon but the connection to something cosmically significant, there just seems to be a disconnect. And it's not necessarily people's fault. You know what I mean? Like in some ways, of, of course, it's a larger culture we share. But at another level, it's just something in the air, something in the water we breathe kind of moves us away from that. So I was trying to kind of name that for the pastor because obviously Taylor isn't, first of all, he's a Catholic, um, as you as you kind of mentioned. and And secondly, he's he's not really thinking about pastors or religious leaders. Um, And so, you know, my kind of contribution is to take what he said and try to put it in line with the practice of ministry and and particularly kind of Protestant forms of the practice of ministry and see if it helps us out a little bit um, along the way. So that's kind of where I was going with it. Yeah, I think you've nailed it, the sense that it almost is like runs in the background 
of our yeah. subconscious. It's not, it's not that anybody's ever said to me, like, dude, pastors are losers, you know? <laughs> or, yeah, right. Although, although my son the other day, so I've got an 11 year old son and we're, we're, we're enjoying this Minnesota, this early fall, we're sitting around a bonfire, just me and him. And he goes, dad, you know, I'm glad you're a pastor, but you know, I, I actually think you could probably do a lot more with your life. <laughs> he didn't mean it in a bad way. He was actually right. like trying to be encouraging. And I was like, thanks, I think, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like he didn't mean anything by it. He, you know, as an 11-year-old, he loves Jesus as much as an 11-year-old can probably love Jesus and didn't mean any harm by it. But he still put into words that sense of like, well, you know, just in the cultural social status ladder pastors are not what they once were. Right. And I think you highlight that in some really profound ways in your book. I'm curious, maybe, you know, I, I think people that have listened to this podcast have, uh, and maybe have listened for the past couple of years, have a, a general familiarity with this secular age thesis. I've, I think I've usually used a different term to describe it, to make it more accessible. I think I, I usually frame this as you know, the secular age that's, that's created our, our cultural meaning crisis. Yeah. Because that's what it feels like on, for most people. That's what they experience it as. But to you, like, how do you understand, you know, or summarize in yeah. a, a few short sentences what the thes general thesis is of, of Charles Taylor's work? Yeah, I mean, it's a dangerous question because, yeah. uh, you know, like, basically the 700 pages of Taylor's book <laughs> is trying to, like, be clear on what do we really mean when we yeah, say so put secular. put it in a sentence for yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, well, this is, you know, like you mentioned, uh, Jamie's, Jamie's work, and what's so significant about that is he takes 770 pages and gets it down to 130, really without losing the kind of depth or at least the, the through line of the narrative that Taylor's doing. And, um, you know, I think that's an, an incredible contribution. But basically that is the issue is that you say secular in any conversation at any coffee shop and everyone will agree with you that it exists or that it's there, or particularly like at a pastor's conference, if you're like, well, an issue we face as pastors is that we live in a secular age or the secular is something we have to deal with. Everyone will be like, oh yeah, for sure. But if you start to tease out what people mean or how they would define secular, it's quite different. And Taylor's basic point is that we have three options for what we can think secular is. And they all come into play. And one is that there's just a divide between the public and private realm, you know? So this becomes the first kind of shock to the pastor or the first reason that your 11-year-old could be like, dad, I think you can do better with your life <laughs> is because we live with this is just ingrained in us that there is a disconnect between um, the public and private sphere and religion is filed in a private sphere. So, you know, I mean, in some studies they're saying, dad, it's great that you can do stuff in people's private lives and people in their private lives trying to find some meaning or get through cancer or whatever privately, it's great that they come to you, but don't you think you could do something more like that would make a public difference in the world? Like right. there's just a kind of separation or we think like, um, you know, like if you go to a kind of secular zero world or a world without the secular, it would be impossible for us to think of our, even our, say our governor or someone who's reading, leading our social lives to not be someone who's deeply of faith. And now a lot of people in our neighborhoods don't trust people who are of faith leading their cultural realms. They trust more secular people than kind of religious people for multiple different reasons. Or at least faith but, defined by traditional religious. Exactly. You know, yeah. uh, creedal affirmations or. Right, right. Yeah. Like if someone was to say, um, you know, in, in, for, in the 14th century in Paris, like uh, I'm 
I'm I'm a, I'm part of part of the landed the landed elite, but I don't believe in God. I'd be like, whoa, uh, what could this mean? We're all at danger. The devil and demons are going to get into the realm in a certain way. What what does this mean? Where in some sense, when someone says like I'm a scientific person and not a religious person, and and religion's fine, but I will make all my decisions um, for the, in this way, we kind of feel like oh, I trust that person more. Yeah. I mean, at least the larger culture kind of feels like that. So that's one way of thinking of secular, and that does come out in really weird American ways where um, we have certain kind of conservative Protestant line, like the whole issue with America is once you lose prayer in schools, you lose everything, which is a really kind of secular one definition. But the second secular, or secular two, as he calls it, is this sense of fewer and fewer people going to church. And for most like denominational leaders and bishops and other kind of judicatory leaders or, or pastors of big churches, it's almost always how we think about secular. Like fewer people are coming, young adults aren't coming back to church, you know, uh, our youth ministries are, are depleted, um, there's fewer seminary students, like we're just losing people. And Taylor's point is, if you're a church professional, uh, I mean, he doesn't say this, but he essentially points to this, like that matters to you. Like, yeah you're going to have a hard time buying health insurance, you know, like institutions are going to be weaker. That matters. But he says, that's not what he thinks it means to actually live in a secular age. And the kind of secular that I'm wanting to pick up from him, and I think is just incredibly profound, is what he calls um, the fragilization of all beliefs, or that all beliefs become contested. So it is a crisis of meaning, but part of the crisis of meaning is that there's just layer on top of layer of meaning, um, yeah. and you're confronted with competing meanings all the time. You know, yes. so his his point is, if you believe in this kind of secular age, you can't help not believing sometimes. Like you just are fragilized. Your belief becomes fragilized. And that's just part of the condition for people who live in this age. But what's so fascinating about Taylor and why I love reading him over and over again is because it's just never just one way, but it it spins back on itself. So he's like, if you are a believer, you're going to be thrust into doubt. You just have to deal with that. But if you're someone who doesn't believe, you're going to find your unbelief fragilized too. And sometimes you're going to find yourself believing, you know, like you're sure there's no meaning in the world. There's no at least divine meaning in the world. And then you go to that Christmas concert that, you know, your niece is singing at or something. And all of a sudden there's that box song played and something happens inside the haunting. of you. You get haunted by something. Yeah. Um, and so there's, so that's what I think he means. And it takes him 700 pages is to talk about how do we get to a world where all this belief becomes fragilized and it becomes really an option um, for us to believe. And it's never just a straightforward story, which is what's so frustrating about it, is that it, as soon as it goes one direction, he wants to tell us it could go another direction. So he's got to lay on 700 pages of telling us this story, which is really just to answer the question, why in 1500 was it nearly impossible to not believe? And in 2000, just give a round number, it's really quite easy not to believe, even for pastors and 11-year-olds whose dad's a pastor, you know? <laughs> what do you think, and I think you've touched on some of these factors already, but what, what would you see as some of the contributing factors that have led so many, and I'm, I'm going to kind of focus in on the Western world because that's yeah. the space we inhabit, right? Right. What do you think has led to this deep sense of the emptiness in the ordinary, the, the general feeling of malaise that you describe where um, and maybe you've addressed this already, but there seems to be all these competing guiding stories. You can't filter through them all. Maybe the one that, that, that's the overarching guiding story is this naturalist framework, which makes everything feel as if 
there is no transcendence. All you have is the imminent. And so you feel this, again, the language you use from Taylor, this malaise. And this malaise is something like pastors don't even easily escape. Yeah. So what do you see as some of the contributing factors that have led this, led to this point in the Western yeah, world? I mean, it's really an open debate, but I, I tend to really agree with Taylor that a lot of it has to do with just the disenchantment of what it means to live in our world. Like that we just live in a world that um, where devils and demons are not very present. And, and it's a confusing thing because I think Taylor would for sure say, and I would actually, I'll speak for myself before I speak for him, but I would for sure say, and I know Taylor would say that he'd rather live in a world that uh, you don't have to worry about your seven-year-old having, you know, a fit because she's doing online schooling and throwing, you know, at, every day at 1130, you know, breaking down and crying. And you tend, like our default mechanism is to think, oh, she's overwhelmed. This is a psychological issue. She's, she's exhausted. It's just a, a learning a whole new system. You know, and if, if she's older, like my daughter who's 13, you're thinking, well, this is just puberty. These are, you know, these are things that happen. Those are my, our default mechanisms. And Taylor does think it's, it's a better world to think that than to think, oh my gosh, there's a demon here. We better, you know, call in a Catholic priest because a Protestant couldn't do it, you know, calling a Catholic <laughs> yeah. priest to, to, you know, give a, a kind of some kind of seance or some kind of ritual over the house. And, you know, it's probably a good thing that we don't default to that, but what in the, to get to that, to, to kind of get to that world, we also have to strip away other meaning too, you know, so it becomes just harder for us to feel like the world actually speaks to us. Like the world has there's a story behind it that there's something bigger that's calling out to us. I mean, the world itself, let alone the living God who's in the world, acting and moving in events, calling us to God's own self and bringing forth a history that that's in God's own and that our identities are somewhat, um, have to be somewhat constituted outside of ourselves and not just within what we feel and what we want. Like those, those all give life a certain richness. And mm. so the malaise that we have, it, it's a certain fright to it, but also a certain a certain richness to it. So, you know, it's just, it would be impossible for someone like Martin Luther to ever understand the malaise of meaninglessness. You know, yes. like it's just a, a medieval person there. It, the issue wasn't that there wasn't meaning. There's just too much meaning. And that was frightening. And, you know, uh, you couldn't even sleep at night because you wondered if God was going to damn you or, you know, if, if someone in, in the village was doing some kind of witchcraft that could open up portals to evil for like, you were just right. overwhelmed. Hence, all, hence all the witch hunts right that, exactly that happened yeah europe and in the early colonies absolutely yeah and, and taylor does a really nice job even with those witch hunts is like saying yes of course as late modern people we should say that that was an ethical problem but also let's stand inside their perspective and uh i don't think we can let them morally off the hook for like burning 12 year olds at the stake but at the, <laughs> right. another level it is a completely different framework to assume that the whole of your society, you know, could be at risk for one person's or a few person's, um, you know, disobedience in this kind of spiritual realm. So this is a huge issue, I think, disenchantment. And, and I just wonder, especially for Protestant pastors, if I often, I often think that Protestant pastors are actually more disenchanted than the people in their churches, you know, that, that somehow we feel like, and speaking particularly of mainline pastors, that Part of the part of the problem of being in the business, to put that in quote marks, is that yeah, you believe that there's the real presence in the sacrament, but do you really 
you know, believe that. And yeah, you've you don't seen the assumed. Wizard of Oz behind the curtain already. Right, you, right. That's exactly right. You've seen behind the curtain, and and you don't want people to get the wrong impression about you know about you, and and you're not sure where you know. I think that's an, a huge kind of pastoral issue is that there are actually people in our congregations who have these deep experiences, enchanted experiences of the Spirit being near to them, or encounters with the living Jesus Christ, kind of like you know Paul on the road to. Mask totally. is where God, Jesus shows up and speaks to them. But I think disenchanted as pastors, we don't create a lot of environments for people to share, share those stories. Totally. And, and we don't kind of give off this idea that we that you you maybe don't expect that. And maybe that still is a profound thing um, that doesn't happen every day. But that happens, that, that, that person of Jesus Christ lives and acts and still moves within the world. Um, and so I think that disenchantment is a, is a huge piece. But Taylor's whole point is that it just has, connects to so many other things. And one of the more profound things for me in his work is this idea that you can only get to this kind of world, this world where belief is an option, because it's born out of the womb of a world that really believes. Now, that's like a really profound thing. And it actually lands on our lap because he's telling the story of Protestantism. You know, he's like, Protestants really, really believed, you know, like 500 years ago, like really believed and believed so much that they pulled all these enchanted practices and in some ways downgraded the enchanted practices so that it wouldn't just happen in the mass, but it would happen everywhere. So this is what he calls like the affirmation of ordinary life. Or now ordinary life becomes the place where we live this out. And so this is, you know, as a, in living uh, living in the Lutheran world, like the priesthood of all believers is a really right. important thing. But we tend to think of that like democratically, like looking back <laughs> yeah. through like the American and French Revolution, and think it's like a word against like hierarchy or something. Yeah. You know, like it's a, like it's a kind of republican statement in the broadest way. You know, so it's like, well, we're for the priesthood of all believers. We don't believe in hierarchies. Well, that's really not what it meant 500 years ago. And what it actually meant is in your ordinary life, it didn't matter if you were the baker or if you were running an inn for travelers or you were a priest or pastor, you had to live like a priest. Everyone had to raise their bar to live like a priest, you know, totally. so that everyone's responsibility was that. So once you raise that bar and then it's not just within the church building or the cathedral, but it is everywhere in the world you have to live that out. Taylor's point is it takes a couple hundred years, but eventually that high bar can be lowered all the way down. And particularly in the 19th century, this happens. Then instead of us all trying to be priests, what if there really isn't any kind of high bar we have to get to? Yeah. Uh, And that starts to create the conditions for this. And now the pastor inherits a world, not where your job and everyone feels like it's their responsibility is to get to the high bar of belief in living this all out. None of us get to be Jonathan Edwards anymore, where we can say to our congregations, you know, you better watch how you raise your kids or you will burn dangling on that spider web. (laughs) Yes, that becomes really hard and people can kind of just shut that off. And people don't really have to listen to that um, where, you know, in, in colonial America before the revolution, man, like people really, that was a, a, a big deal. So that, so we inherit that kind of challenge. We inherit it within us that we feel the bar lowered for us too. And we feel like there we are in the pulpit preaching this word. Um, and you have to somehow do this crazy thing where you have to get through people's buffer you know like people are buffered from all of these things and before all you needed was the words of institution or the reading of the biblical text and it went people assume this was going straight into their being 
And now people live with some kind of like psychological buffer, some kind of disenchanted buffer. And uh, yeah, if it, if it moves me, it, uh, it, it uh, is important. So that's one of the reasons I say in the book, like humor becomes so important for the pastor now because like humor or sad stories or something like that can actually get inside the buffer in a, in a quite legitimate way. Like people start to allow something in. Um, but that just is, it, it's just a challenge. Like, you know, Luther yeah. Calvin never thought like, I, I have to, I have to find four funny things to say in my sermon. So I keep <laughs> people paying attention. Right. Like all they had to say is behold the word of the Lord. And it's like, Holy cow. Like this, this means something, but now the pastor has to do a lot of gymnastics to just keep people listening. And, um, and that's just a, a huge transition. I've been thinking a bit over the last few days, reflecting on, on this transition and wondering, even from a, a psychological sense, whether or not w- part of what takes place in us as we begin to like f- feel like we understand the world more, right? It, it seems like it was the religious framework of people like Isaac Newton that gave birth to the scientific revolution. And then the scientific revolution ended up killing God, not in and of itself. There's a whole host of other factors, but certainly the God of the gaps slowly disappears. And now we have better mechanisms for explaining how the planets are in motion. You know, it's, it's gravity and we can go to, we can go to Einstein. You know, we don't have to necessarily imagine some divine force doing that. And I've wondered too whether or not, even just on a psychological sense, the what ends up happening is that we have this full range of explanatory power, and we feel like even when we don't have an answer to something, that science or some natural explanation will eventually give it to us. And it buffers us, like you're saying. It gives us this buffered sense of uh, none of these arrows are going to penetrate that that imminent frame. And I wonder too, and the thing I I think about on the psychological sense is this malaise and this general sense of malaise or even melancholy that we might, it it hangs over us kind of like, I did a video a while back on this sort of secular age symbolism in, um, in Christopher Nolan's, uh, interstellar. Right. And, And thinking of that, that dust, you know, there, there was this dust that just kind of hung over the earth. You know, it wasn't like a cataclysmic nuclear war. It wasn't like a, a, an asteroid that was about to strike the world that you need Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck to go up on a rocket ship and save. You know, it's just this general malaise that the, this is just kind of how things are. And I've wondered whether or not, like, the sort of psychological forces of our dopaminergic and serotonergic systems that we need a sense that um, we're progressing towards a goal, and that goal is a new achievement a new achievement being unlocked. But when we feel like we have this full range of explanations at our disposal, that it closes us down to transcendence. Because by its very definition, transcendence is something that is external to us. Like it's external to our closed our closed universe. And just wondering whether or not that feeling like there is, we've explained it all already. And if we haven't, we have the tools already. So like you say, when your daughter is really frustrated with another Zoom teacher conference, right? We don't go to 
you know, we need to get the lucky rabbit's foot out. We don't need to turn to white magic. And you talk about yeah. this in your book, the, you know, the, the ancient world, Thomas Becket. And I want to unpack that in a little bit. You don't bring in a priest. You know, you, you're looking, you, you may not have the explanation at hand, but you know the tools that you have in your disposal will eventually lead. And I just wonder whether or not that, that contributes to this general sense in which transcendence isn't, isn't yeah. possible. And we feel the malaise because we don't get the dopamine hit that comes when that beautiful piece of music breaks through that buffered self, that even that sad story the pastor feels like he has to use to break through those barriers. You, you, in those moments, you get an awareness of a world external to yourself. Yeah. And without that, it, it does seem... This seems really difficult. Can we take a little trip in history? Because yeah, yeah. you do this really good job of doing a sort of like ministry history, examining what the pastoral or priestly vocation looked like in these different epochs. Mm -hmm. And you present these pastoral archetypes as case studies. And I love the people that you chose and the, the time periods that you chose. And there was just some incredible insights in these snapshots showing how these different pastors, these archetypes, they, their place in culture was very different from our modern pastoral vocation and its place in culture. So I'd love to start, you start with Thomas Beckett in the medieval period. Yeah. So for those unfamiliar with Beckett, right, like a lot of people that maybe grew up in Protestant traditions aren't very familiar with Beckett. I'm a, I'm like a low church evangelical, yeah, grew yeah, up yeah. charismatic and Pentecostal. I mean, I didn't even read it church hist history book till I was like in my 20s, right? That just wasn't yeah, yeah. a thing. So right. who was who was Thomas Beckett and how different was his world from ours and the value that the culture of his day would have placed on someone in pastoral ministry? Yeah. Um, first thing I have to say is like, I'm no historian. So um, I once had the, the, the great privilege of uh, having a, a cup of coffee with Charles Taylor. And I asked him, what do, what do historians think of your work? And he said, I don't ask them. <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to yeah. follow that tradition. And so <laughs> any, any true Beckett scholar will probably be like, oh my gosh, is this elementary? But that's the best, that, best I can do. So that, that's one of the things that's really fascinating to me about Taylor is how he uses history. And he's actually doing this thing he took from his teacher, Isaiah Berlin, which is to use these kind of larger historical movements to get to, to help us see how ideas get to us. So yes. how these imaginations get formed. But Beckett's an interesting story because Beckett is this, this guy who's born in London. Um, I mean, we're talking really medieval period here. Um, uh, I mean, below the years, but you know, we're talking like 11, 1200s. And um, he, he finds his way into basically, well, he finds his way into being the Archbishop of, of Canterbury. And when he has this experience, he goes, he's, he's actually made the Archbishop of Canterbury because King Henry wants him, has already, he already has a position with King Henry and he thinks he'll be able to control him now. And Henry's having issue with some of the priests. And so he thinks he, he's got a man now in the highest church office, but something transforms Beckett. And now he defends these priests and he wants to watch over these priests. And um, it ends up leading to his really gruesome murder. Where, oh, yeah. <laughs> where in the court, Henry says something like, I mean, this is, no one knows if this is really what he said or, you know, like there's been plays based yeah. off this, but he said like, who's, who will rid me of this priest? And so these knights went, found him in Vespers and like, I mean, this is historically accurate, like, sword to the head, brains spill out, and he becomes a martyr. And the most interesting thing about Beckett is that 
first of all, there's this transformation as a pastor that that comes to him. Like he goes through this consecrated um, liturgy and all of a sudden he feels like his being has changed. But he becomes for the next hundreds of years, really until the Tudor dynasty and, and Protestantism comes to England, that he is um, this kind of saint that people uh, have vials of his blood that they carry around, that heals them, that they go to his tomb often if you're sick and pray to it. So there's just this kind of whole sense of being taken up into this very kind of rich divine economy that that Beckett has happened to himself that leads him to give his own life and become a martyr. But then for hundreds of years, um, lay people see Beckett as the great defender of the faith. And, you know, was this really his blood in a vial? Probably not. Right. Somebody probably was making a little money off of it. But people really deeply believe that and um, would go to those things. And um, just trying to kind of point of how different that enchanted realm is than, than where we're actually at now. And it, and it gets into exactly what you were saying before is that, you know, that there was a time where, you know, this is pre-scientific revolution, obviously, by, um, you know, four or 500 years. And um, there's a sense where you lived in, a, as Taylor says, you lived in a cosmos, you know, like where everything was connected. And instead as, of a universe, right? Instead of a universe, yeah. yeah a universe of laws, you know, where, um, where phenomenon, ha- phenomenon, for instance, like phenomenon happen in universes that don't really mean anything to like the human story. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, well, there's a, a blood red moon. Well, that's interesting. We know now mathematically that happens every, you know, 150 years or 170 years or whatever. We know why it happens as these things occur. But if you're in Beckett's time and you see a red blood moon and you're living in a uh, in a cosmos, you think that means something. That's a message. God is saying something. That means something for my life or for my village or for the realm in which we live. Like a king's going to die or a king's going to live. The, the, at the very least, the harvest is going to be good or the harvest is going to be bad. So you can just see how much more meaning is spilled into your life when phenomenon means something. Where for us, it's like, that they don't really mean anything. I mean, one of my colleagues tells a story about taking her kids or, you know, probably, I don't know, uh, four and six out getting them up in the middle of the night to see the red blue blood moon. And they're, you know, they're staggering around, um, all, you know, uh, eyes out uh, closed and she wakes them up and they show them that she's like, see, cause this is important. Isn't this cool? Like back in the olden days, they would have thought that this meant like a King was going to die. And her son's like, really? And she's like, yeah, but mommy, it's, we just, it's just the moon now. Right. And she's like, yeah, 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 it is. I mean, like, that's all it is. But that's a certain kind of burden to bear that even these phenomenon, I mean, it's in some ways it's releasing. It's great that you don't have to go around for three weeks wondering what what the heck does this mean? Like, if you're a pastor, one of the jokes when I kind of lecture on this is say, remember when the blood moon happened and I put the date up and it's like, you remember it because you're, your calendar was filled. Like, you know, people were calling you every 15 minutes wanting to talk. They didn't know if they should have a baby or if they shouldn't have a baby or if the, you know, like you were just doing so much pastoral care because of the red blood moon. And of course, every pastor in the room is like, uh, no. And of course they weren't because no one thought it meant anything. You know what I mean? Like it was cool. It's a cool phenomenon. It means something in a uni- in a universe way. You know, it means something about how the sun moves around the, uh, the moon and how it reflects on the moon, but it doesn't mean anything in the sense of it has a message to you. And Beckett's world just deeply believed that. And so if you could get a little, if you could get a hold of the relic, um, you know, and if you could get a hold of his bones, that had real significance and power. And, um, you know, I don't think I want to go back to a world where 
the heart of pastoral ministry is just getting relics. You know what I mean? Like we, <laughs> yeah. we saw where that goes and it becomes a kind of gross trade, you know, totally. but at another level, we just do not assume that things have a divine or an evil charge to them. You know, we know what things are. Uh, we, we can take them down to the, the quantum level and, you know, um, and tell you what they actually are. We think we can. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, so we strip the world of mystery. I mean, that's kind of Taylor's point. And when we say there's a mystery, what we really mean is there's a puzzle we haven't solved yet. Not that there's actually a mystery that there's stuff in the world that spills over being to the point that you can never really comprehend it. Mm. there's things we can't comprehend, but we kind of have the assumption that, well, someday we will. Like someday we'll hone the methods of scientific discovery and we'll get those. Yeah, and um, we don't see intentional agency behind them. Absolutely not, yeah. And that's yeah. the key difference, right? And that that's, in the medieval world, you have not just God as, you know, ultimate reality, but you have a host of other spiritual principalities and powers that you believe are very active that all have agency too. So you're... You're seeing, you know, and it might be, you brought this up in your book, that it could be just symptomatic. We might just explain that away as hyperactive agency disorder. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, right. You know, yep. like it's yep. it's just a, a relic of our evolutionary processes where we had to be on heightened guard for predators yep. in our environment. But that world, you know, if you imagine the the sorts of lengths people would go to to get a vial of Beckett's blood or to visit his 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 shrine, how much more regard would they have for that priest, that pastor, right? To be a priest yep. in while they were living, right? Absolutely. And you just think about the sense in which a pastor holds this high regard that, that a king would feel like he needs to go to war, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, like you'd have Game of Thrones type plots between a king <laughs> and a pastor seems almost absurd today, other than like, we can, we can imagine how presidents and politicians try to get the voting right. block right. of a successful pastor, but right. we, we can't actually s- picture them as seeing them having real spiritual potency and power. Right. It's so foreign, but I do, I feel like I have a frame of reference for it because I grew up in a charismatic yeah. and Pentecostal tradition. So when even when you're talking about the blood moon, you know, like I go, well, not all pastors' calendars would have been cleared, you know, sure, today right. if that, that happens. I mean, there are plenty of everything from the kind of extreme John Hagee dispensationalist blood moon books that are yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Good point. To, yeah. you know, even in, in my context, I mean, I always share this funny story about how, um, you know, a wonderful church I was on staff at, and I never... I'm not saying this in any sort of disparaging way about the church, but very, very charismatic, very Pentecostal. And in my office at the time, I had these like two world market statues. You know, like mm-hmm. you're talking about a suburban store as you can find, right? World market. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was these statues. My wife felt like my office was, was a bit Spartan. And so she got these little statues. They stood about, you know, 10 inches tall or something like that. One was... uh someone playing a saxophone and the other one was someone playing a guitar, but they were like, you know, like had long legs. There wasn't a face on them at all. It was just uh-huh. kind of like, yeah. just poor art. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I had these sitting in my office and I come in one day and there's a note on the statues in my office from the intercessory prayer team. Again, this is not something you experience in high church traditions, Sure. but in charismatic Pentecostal yep. traditions, you have things like an intercessory prayer team 
that prays throughout the service doing spiritual warfare. And you really, really take that seriously. So they left a note on the statue saying, we were praying in your office and we felt like there could be Nephilim spirits attached to these statues. Did you get them from someplace in Africa or in the third world, you know, where there, there may be witches? Yeah. You know, they were, they were genuinely concerned. The world was still enchanted. And like you say, you know, my response was, no, I bought it from World Market. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, like, there's a part of me that I go, in that world, the yeah. pastor is still seen, like, you know, yeah. I, was a, I was a worship pastor, and I was still seen as an exorcist, in a sense, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. I've actually seen what I still hold to today, even though I'm not in those contexts anymore, is real exorcisms. Like, yeah. like weird, like voices coming right. out of people, you know, things that in Tom, Thomas Beckett's time, people have been like, yeah, this stuff happens all the time. Yeah. Um, but I also don't know if I want to constantly inhabit that world because sometimes right. it's just a statue from world market. Right, right. You know, yeah. and sometimes, yeah. sometimes I've seen instances where people, you know, uh, these kind of like, uh, I sometimes would joke and call it like Dungeons and Dragons theologians yeah. that were so into this we're going to tear down principalities and powers that they would go after somebody that really, they, they probably just needed a therapist sure. and they, they needed some medicine to help regulate their hormones. But instead in that frame, they were seen as demon possessed. And I, I've seen really right. people treated in ways that I go really harmful. And yet part of me, I wrestle with it because I don't want to leave it all yeah, behind. Right. I don't want to live in this world. That's not enchanted. I don't want to live in a world where, like, the biblical story doesn't even make sense. Right. You know? And yet, there's so much of that world where I go, I also, I don't want, I want to just have a world market statue (laughs) and not, you know, like, and just be able to give somebody that explanation and it'd be sufficient. Yeah. Um, Do you think there's any way that we can have some of Beckett's enchantment without overdosing on superstition? Yeah, I mean that that is that's the interesting that's the really interesting question because I mean it does go back historically like how do we start to move this towards disenchantment and um, one of the things that happens is it's actually theologians and really devout bishops that start to move away from enchantment because they're afraid of the way that the common people are thinking of the Eucharist as magic and they really don't want it to be viewed as magic but it's really hard for ordinary people to not see it as magic when you know you say that this is the real body and blood of Jesus Christ and, you know so for them you know I tell a story in the book that comes from a, a Keith Thomas book um, a historian, UK historian about people taking, yeah, you know, yeah. not swallowing the host and taking right. it out and feeding it to their pigs. So, so part of this is what's really interesting about Taylor is it's always these like best intentions that usually are out of faithfulness that sometimes has moved us in this, in this bad direction. And I really do. I mean, I'm with you actually, like I have a ton of really weird, um, that I think are really true. Like spiritual experiences you know like even in this my house that i live in that is 1912 like when we first moved into it some very weird stuff happened you know like so really believe that's true but what's probably very different for us or at least different for me um then in beckett's time like we had this really weird experience in this house where my wife like had um 
kind of like poltergeisty experience happened to her. And the guy mm. who used to live in this house died in this, you know, there's all these kind of weird things that are perfect when you're having a drink with friends, you know, that yeah. makes everyone, you know, all of a sudden have to tell their story. But we had that experience and we prayed over the house and, you know, we did all that kind of stuff and, um, you know, borrow practice from charismatic communities and Catholic communities. And, um, you know, we've really felt like, you know, God cleansed the house, if you want to say that. Yeah. But what's yeah. probably different from us than from um, a medieval you know, Thomas's experience is that we rarely think about that anymore. Like yeah. it doesn't order our lives in any way. Like or you're like, almost I, embarrassed sharing the story. Oh right yeah. Now. And if someone yeah. was like, if I were to meet someone and they were to come over to, to do work on my house and say, wow, this is an interesting house. Tell me the history of this house. I wouldn't start and say, well, <laughs> when we moved in, <laughs> We you know what I mean? It spiritually. Right, right. Like there, the, there, there was still the, the some kind of demonic or you know some kind of evil force was still in it. We had to cast that out first. Like I wouldn't say that. Um, I would say, well, you know, was, you know, I, w- I would give again a natural material, imminent frame bound response to this, and I surely don't create some kind of monument that invites other people within my community to come to my house and pray because we experience God's <laughs> casting yeah. out at my house. You know what I mean? So I don't have like a monument in front of my door that says, you know, in, in 2016, Kara <laughs> Root cast out an evil force from this place. And if you're dealing with evil forces at your house, you should come and, and pray here or, you know, ask mm. her to pray for you. Like that was the kind of world that, that we lived in. But you're absolutely right that even in our most secularized forms, we're still always not quite as modern as we think we are. You know, like the example I always use of this is when Tom Brady led his greatest Super Bowl comeback of all time. One of the big stories in the news, um, the news cycle on that Monday morning was that his jersey was stolen from the locker room. That's and, right. You know, you just think about how like sports memorabilia works and why does someone want Tom Brady's sweaty used game jersey when they could go buy one on eBay, you know? Well, it has some kind of essence to it because that's the shirt he was wearing when he did the great thing. Mm. That's not that far away from no, Saints and Relics here. You no. know? So we're never quite as modern as we we think we are. And then in other ways that we have these cultural forms that we don't. Like no one in the Presbyterian church has ever asked Cara, have you ever cast out a demon and should we put up some kind of monument uh, to do that? So there, we, we live in these kind of <laughs> conflicted kind of uh, ways, I think. So um, I think we need enchantment. My, my kind of movement back is to say that there are ways that we share in each other's stories and really that really give and receive ministry to one another that does open us up from disenchantment to enchantment. Like there's a sense when you're really struggling with something and you're up against a kind of deep death experience, like even diagnosed with cancer or your marriage is, is in a really dark place or your, your son just, you can't get through to him and you're really worried about him. And someone is there for you in the midst of that and shares in that with you and bears that story with you and in many ways gives their person to be with and for you in those moments. It does feel like people will say things like, um, you came, you, you were there just in time. I, I thought I was all alone and you were an answer to prayer. I mean, people will start using kind of transcendent language to talk about that. And I think that is a real experience of having our closed worlds open up to us. And so, you know, Taylor does think you can't escape this imminent frame. Like you, this, this imminent world we live in is what we inherit, but there are faithful ways to live in it and there are unfaithful ways. And we can keep spinning it closed. And every time you have, 
a weird experience or find someone who's there for you, you know, someone who really wants to be there for you, you can say, well, that, I, I just don't know what's in it for them. Or, you know, there's, there's must be some other explanation to this, or you can follow it and you can wonder and you can ask, is there something deeper calling to you? You can have an, what he calls an open take. You can be open that there's something more within this, that, that something can break in um, from outside of us and, and speak to us. And uh, I think that, I think there. I think there's a way forward for the pastor in the midst of that, but it isn't, you are no longer the vampire slayer that you would have been <laughs> 700 years ago. You know what right. I mean? Like where you, <laughs> even if you didn't think yourself, you had magic, everyone assumed you had magic and you did think in yourself, like the words I say do real physical and spiritual things. There's and ontological changes. There's yes. That, that Not words. Just psychological. Bring That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You talked about um, communion and the Eucharist, and uh, I just found this section in your book where you highlight, and this is stuff Taylor's brought up before, but I think you described it in a way connected to pastoral ministry that really helped me see some, just how crazy this shift was in the Reformation, that we weren't just talking about in the Reformation. There were changes, theological changes on the views of, uh, and, and doctrines surrounding the Eucharist and communion. And as someone that grew up in a tradition, again, we, no matter the context, whether I was charismatic, Pentecostal, uh, now I'm in just a free church, right? Every place uh, does communion like once a month. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> you yeah. know? So, and it's always been a sort of Zwinglian, or mm-hmm. we're doing this in remembrance of me, but you brought up something that I know Taylor's brought this up, but I think just the way that you put it helped me see how much of a reality-shifting, ontological revolution theological changes about the Eucharist were during the Reformation. Can you lay out a little bit of why that changed, the change that we see? And, you know, and that's not that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli agreed, but in each each of them, they veered away from what had been the historic Catholic position on what happens in the Eucharist. Can you lay out a little bit of why that was yeah. such a radical, radical change and how that actually leads a little bit to the feeling of we're trapped in the imminent frame? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating point that, um, that other people are kind of making connections to. But I mean, the basic point is like kind of what we had said earlier is that the reformers became really concerned that the way kind of the medieval cultic understanding of the Eucharist and how huge it was. I mean, because we have this time when people are sneaking out with the Eucharist, you know, and feeding it to their pigs. To heal their Uh, starving and dying animals, right? Right. Yeah. It becomes absolute magic to them, you know? So you, you want a good harvest this year? Maybe it's a good idea to not swallow that host and to, to take it and put it on your fields. And, you know, maybe God will bless your fields. And, um, you know, that's again, the thing itself being enchanted and theologians were really uncomfortable with that. So of course they up the rhetoric and don't want people to come through, don't want people to do it. And one of the greatest technological breakthroughs they could think of was to have people stick out their tongue after the, the priest put the, you know, the, the host on their on their tongue, in which now every like Catholic, uh, uh, Irish or or uh, Italian gangster movie now people are being murdered <laughs> while someone's having the Eucharist and sticking out their tongue to a priest, you know. Um, 
But uh, so they ramped up the fear. Like you are bringing condemnation onto yourself. Like if you misuse, like this is the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. And if you if you misuse the host, like it hosts Jesus Christ. And if you misuse it, you're bringing damnation on yourself. And they ramped that rhetoric up for a good hundred years to the point where people did not want to take it anymore. Like people did not want to take communion. And then it became church law that you had to take it like twice a year or something. Um, and Taylor references this, that most people took it twice a year. Um, it, in the analogy I use is it would be similar today, like this Sunday at church, if someone like raised their hand and said, hey, I just want to let everyone know that I'm having my appendix out on Monday. And I just got to tell you people, like I just love having surgery. It's so fun. Like, I just love the idea of being taken, you know, put under in the anesthesia and not knowing where I am and having no idea what someone's doing to my body and knowing they're going to cut it open and take stuff out. Like, that's so meaningful to me. Like, for someone to say that, you would think that person really does need to see a therapist. Like, there's <laughs> right. something wrong with that person. It would be similar if you went back to those medieval periods of fear and someone said, I love the Eucharist. Like, you would think, my gosh, what is this masochistic, <laughs> weird person saying? Because you were really risking your very being. You could take this holy thing into you. And if you were not in a good place, like if you had sin within you, it could rip you apart. I mean, it was a powerful, powerful force. So people's hands were trembling when they, when they put them behind them so that priests could put it on their tongue, like they were frightened. Well, the Reformation, I, I think, and the, and the Reformers, in a good way, tried to, to, to release us from some of that fear and to release us from some of that magical sense. But unfortunately, I think Taylor's point is, they also have to set the conditions for it to become disenchanted. And right. so both Calvin and Luther still think it's the real presence, but not in this very kind of cultically rich way that it had been within the cathedral and within the, within the, within the, in the Catholic mass. Um, but nevertheless, um, that, op- you know, that creates the conditions for it to become more of a Zinglian free church kind of sense of, of remembrance. And there's been a really interesting book. I think her name is Schwartz. It's called Sacramental Poetics. And she actually then takes that into the Elizabethan area mm. and shows that when like, the Shakespeare revolution happened and the theater became a big deal that then led further to disenchanting it because now when the priest or even the pastor, even the, even the Anglican pastor was, was doing the whole liturgical moves over the Eucharist, it was just theater. It, you know, and and we now know that these people play these pieces and they're not really real. And so she does a really interesting piece about that. And it just then takes so many other terms, like you were talking about the scientific revolution and things like that, like how, how actually could bread every, you know, Jesus really be in it? Like all those things occur as well. Um, And, but what we get and what we inherit, which is a real issue for us, like a real, real issue. And I think the heart of the pastoral issue and the theological issue is that we then, and this is, I guess, your point on the malaise of modernity, is that we just inherit a world that has real, no sacramental ontology in it. So there's really, we live in a kind of default system where we don't think that the infinite can encounter or even inhabit the finite, which most people, that was kind of how they felt and they, they dealt with that kind of reality. And I think that's a real challenge for a pastor. When you inherit a world where people just have a default kind of um, setting that says that, well, finite, infinite kind of conversations in any kind of, and I don't even mean sacramental ontology where you have to return to like a high church. Yeah, yeah. A sense that 
there are real experiences that we have within the world where a divine reality encounters us and the divine reality pulls us into something. And so, you know, there have been a lot of other kind of ways to think about about that, whether it's, you know, through the relationships of the community or something, but there, there becomes this kind of sacramental ontological move. And, and that becomes really important. And that's what kind of Taylor worries about. And I, he never would say that he worries about this, particularly in Protestantism, but it kind of insinuates that is that Protestantism, um, and Jamie Smith talks about this, I think, in a beautiful way, uh, that it runs the risk of excarnation. Where yeah, yeah. Um, where you lose the incarnation because you lose the sacramental ontology, and then the best you can give people is some kind of propositional belief system um, that doesn't actually connect with a larger, well, really to put it uh, the language I would use, doesn't connect with any way to divine action that God yeah. actually acts and moves in the world and still speaks to us um, today. And to me, that becomes a big challenge for pastoral ministry: is how within your own theological conceptions and your tradition, how do you hold on to some kind of sacramental ontology, even if that's with the lowercase s, but some kind of way that the divine act and being encounters real people. And it's just so interesting that both liberalism, kind of theological liberalism and conservative Protestantism have both kind of defaulted to it's just a rationalized or some kind of cognitive system. You know, it's yeah. just cognitively believing pure doctrine or it's just cognitively knowing the right a- ethical actions you should take in society. And that's yeah. the best, re- that's really the best religion can give you. And uh, I think Taylor wants to say, let's not forget this deep legacy of this, um, this kind of uh, sacramental ontology. And it still might be possible even in this kind of secular age to point to, to those realities. Have you heard of a guy named um, behavioral scientist uh, named uh, John Verveke at all? I don't, uh, that name sounds familiar, but I, I don't, I yeah. don't, I, well, I, I'm not recalling got a great, much. He's got a great series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. He's not mm-hmm. a theist of any particular kind, but um, goes through essentially the, the whole of almost Western thought and Western history, even some of the Eastern traditions to explore how we've gotten to the point. And he's, I don't think he ever really uses Taylor's framework, but he's essentially talking about the same experience, the same yeah. sense that we live in an era awakening from the meaning crisis, meaning we are in an era in which we experience an absence of meaning as to use Taylor-esque language, because we are trapped in this imminent frame. We don't know how, if transcendence is even real. But he right. talks about uh, the different kinds of knowing. Um, and he's got, he calls them the four P's. And one of them is, uh, there's, I only re- ever remember consistently two of them, but uh, because the, the, the most relevant, I feel, to like my own story and ministry is um, the difference between propositional knowledge and participatory knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I hear you saying is that something happened in the theological shift around the Eucharist, and it was well-intended, perhaps, to like make it less superstitious to make it maybe less something dare we even say less make it more biblical even mm-hmm. i mean you could yeah, certainly have absolutely. that argument right yep um not to offend any catholic listeners but that was certainly the intention it goes with part and parcel with this priesthood of all believers right it's like the decentralization of yeah. god's divine activity isn't held within a monopolized hierarchical system and now you absolutely. have access to it you have one high priest in Jesus, one mediator, right. so you can access him when you're plowing your fields just as easily yep. as you can. 
Um, but the, the danger with that was maybe when you demystify, when you say the Eucharist is simply a matter of remembrance, it's a remembrance of what? Is it a remembrance of propositional yes. knowledge? And so then this weird shift happens where the means of grace becomes propositional information mm -hmm. instead of participatory interaction yes. with the divine personhood of God and the spirit. And that, that seems to me like, the, as you say, the wrestling match across Western Christian traditions, whether you're talking about, you know, the low church, you know, we are still teaching seven day, you know, young earth creationism all the way through those that might say, not explicitly, but bringing your Bible to church is not, <laughs> yeah. not mandatory. Across right. those spectrums, it seems yeah. like what we're what we're really pointing to people to is propositional knowledge is the is the is the means of grace. But then yeah. you really feel like you're backing yourself into a corner when those propositions about reality seem so hard to hold to in face yeah. of all of these other propositions, which seem like maybe they have more explanatory power yeah. than what you're experiencing. Like, you know, I was joking with my son after he said yeah. that thing to me about you could have been something else. And it was a good segue into, you know, kind of some solid Protestant theology about work. Mm -hmm. And I was just telling him, hey, bud, you know, if you grow up and you want to be a pastor, that's great. But, you know, if you want to choose some other work, it's not what you do, it's the how. Yeah, right, you know, right, right. It's the how yeah. of your motives and the aims yep. of your heart, right. right? This is kind of like part of the Protestant yep. revolution. Yeah. Um, and as I explain that to him, he's, there's a sense of excitement and joy, you know, mm. that he could really find these sorts of things. But I also wonder too, uh, you know, and I think you bring this up, Taylor brings this up, Smith brings this up. It's almost like, it's almost like the Romans when they built the roads for the conquest and expansion of the empire, did they have any idea that the gospel was right. going to be brought down those same roads? And when you make everything sacred, is it just as easy to flip that switch and That's now right. everything Everything is secular. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, as we shift into more recent history, you talk a bit about a guy like Jonathan Edwards and how Jonathan Edwards, you know, he he's in the, the middle of the Enlightenment period and this real radical ontological revolution is ha happening in people's minds. The God of the gaps is disappearing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we feel like we can explain the world you know, through reason and reason alone. But yeah. at least a guy like Jonathan Edwards held a position in his community of probably being the most educated person. Right. That doesn't even seem to be the case anymore for the pastor, right? Right. So how different maybe is our world from the pastor's world today from even that of Jonathan Edwards, who wasn't yeah. as long ago as Beckett or Luther? Right. Well, and I think that's kind of the point of why those propositions could become so kind of significant in, in American religious life in some sense, because your pastoral identity um, could easily be kind of co-opted by propositions because you were the smartest person in your village. You were the only one who could read. Um, you understood, you could, yeah, you could understand all that. So people wanted to listen to your two hour sermons because that was, uh, you know, that's how they, that was the CNN of the day or whatever, you yeah. know, like um, people needed all that. And so that kind of gets stripped away from the pastor too, I think. Um, and I think that's been a real crisis within 
kind of mainline liberalism is that even it kind of I mean in a very in a very weak way it even hung on into the middle of the 20th century that the pastor was a learned person that remember you know like um in not even that long ago in the 20th century like even some of, we're in Minnesota right now some of the you know very academic institutions of this place like St. Olaf and right. um and other institutions like that were historically church institutions and they've taken a lot of steps to make sure that they kind of step away from some of that history, you know? Um, and, uh, it, that's just a different, it's just a different world. So even the vocational kind of sense that your pastor, um, is the smartest person in the room or, I mean, you just don't get that anymore. Like, you know, like you yeah. just, and I'm not sure that that's something that we should have really wanted to hold on to, no, but it at least no. gave you some identity. You know, but why I mean? do people come to you? Why, yeah. you know, what the thing that we I, we wrestle with in ministry in our secular age is the sense of being obsolete, Absolutely. ultimately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if we're not the exorcist, yeah. And we're not, and again, it's not even like oh, pat me on the back because I'm the smartest person in the room, but it's like I feel like I'm actually doing yeah. something that helps people, and they're coming to me looking for wit. Yeah. They're coming to me as at least a dispenser of wisdom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a role to play. And you yeah. have a role to play. There's a relevant role to play where you feel like you're serving someone else in this vital capacity. Mm-hmm. And when that shrinks, we move into like the 20th and 21st centuries, and I, I find. You bring up a few examples in your book of how, um, you know, as, as God is disembedded from public life and spirituality becomes its own category that moves into really this private internal enterprise, there seems to be these whole hosts of new experts that can help us manage our inner world, our buffered selves, right? Because we've moved spirituality away from the public away from, uh, you know, the connection to all of life to just being this internal private affair. But now we've got people like, and this isn't to say that they're doing bad things. You know, mm-hmm. I'm so thankful for these people like therapists. Yeah. Uh, you could go to an Enneagram coach, a yoga yeah. teacher. Uh, we've got mindfulness apps. I've got LeBron James on commercials selling me an app for mindfulness on my phone. Yeah. You know, how have some modern pastors attempted to adapt to even the sense that maybe they're not even like the expert in the inner world? So what maybe are some examples of, of pastors that we've seen in the 20th and 21st yeah. century that have tried to adapt in different ways? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think this is where we start to see a very, I guess, uh, practice-based or kind of on-the-ground difference between mainline and kind of classically evangelical congregations and um, or or pastoral practice, because I I really do think and this will probably make some people mad at me, um, people particularly that I serve, but the mainline pastor, like the last heyday of the mainline pastor, was really the civil rights movement and the involvement in the civil rights movement, but the whole culture took such an interesting odd turn that we've never really awoken from or never moved past, but this kind of movement into what Taylor calls the age of authenticity that kind of comes off of this bohemian and kind of countercultural move that is a real awakening kind of to the self. It's a recovery of kind of a more romantic dispositions. And, um, and this leads to, I think, the greatest challenge, one of the greatest challenges we face now is what Taylor calls the Nova effect, where you take 
this openness to find your own authentic path that each individual should only listen to what speaks to them, even an ethic of authenticity, Taylor calls where no other human being should tell another human being how they should live their life. Hmm. And you should be really mad at people on Twitter. If they tell another human being how they should live (laughs) their life, you know Um, you take that reality and then you take the kind of crisis going on in organized religion and the pressure between those things just explodes into what he calls all these, all these third options. And I really don't think mainline Christianity has ever dealt with the Nova effect. It kind of is just sitting there still going like, wait a minute, we used to be the main kind of religious institution people came to. And, you know, we we actually did some good things like through anti-slavery stuff, through, you know, through uh, the civil rights movement, things like that. And now all of a sudden, no one really cares, which is the evangelicals, you know, this is in broadest strokes, but what they did best is to have this deep intuitive recognition of the Nova effect and mm. respond to the Nova effect. And so the story I tell is the story of Rick Warren, who is just very different than all these other pastors, especially the American ones I tell who are kind of East coast intellectual elites. And Rick Warren is a Southern California guy, like the place where the Nova effect really has yeah. its deepest roots is yeah. like, you know, in Northern and Southern California. And that's where his ministry is. And, you know, while interestingly, while the, while the Southern Baptist Convention is having its big like takeover split that would change it for generations, he's in seminary and he doesn't go. Like he's he's in Texas, just hours away from Waco, where this is happening, up in Fort Worth or something. And he decides he doesn't care because he's in the public library in the basement reading through demographics, um, like. Um, studies so he can figure out where's the best place to plant a church you know so like (laughs) the whole denominational fight even the fight kind of about propositions or who's going to be the leader of the denomination he doesn't care he's going to start his own church that's going to be for these seekers these people in the nova effect and so there's a really we have to commend that like there is a missional um a missional intuitive genius to that but part of the problem that i worry about with that is he, he kind of has to relativize Jesus to one of the other third things along the way, you know? And so in some sense, Jesus just becomes just like yoga, just like mindfulness. It's one of many other third things. Now to his credit, he thinks when you line up and put in, in competition, Jesus and yoga, Jesus is going to win every time, you know, that Jesus will always be a, will always fulfill purpose, but he kind of has to relativize Jesus to one of the third things to be able to do this. But I mean, I think the thing again that has to be commended is that he recognized this kind of Nova effect. But I also think it does something to the pastor, which it kind of, even in being able to honor his genius in doing that, it does kind of rebound out to pastors and say, well, all right, if you're if you feel like you're part of the Renaissance Festival and like no one cares about you, well, the only other response to that is to become like Rick Warren and create a church that you take from 25 people to 25,000 people, you totally. know, and, and then you're doing a good job. And so it, I just feel like the, the, this moment in kind of pastoral identities, you're just either stuck, like what, who cares what I do to, I gotta, I gotta find the, I gotta find the next big thing. I gotta be the next pastor who moves my church from five people to 50 people to 500 people to 5,000 people, you know, to a network of 80 churches that, you know, that we train or something. It's not the pastor as vampire hunter, not the pastor as the smartest person in the community. It's the pastor as CEO model. Yep. And the entrepreneur that... It's it's really funny. My first foray into ministry was at 19 years old. 
in my charismatic church, the pastors came to me and said, hey, we see the call of God in your life. So very, you know, enchanted language. Yeah. <laughs> and we, uh, we want to we wanna have you join our staff as a pastoral intern. And I think within the first year, they sent me off to one of these Rick Warren uh, purpose-driven church conferences. And essentially, it was, uh, and again, a lot of this is really well-intended, but as I sat through it, I looked around and I felt, I felt like I was at, and it's almost like a, oh gosh, like a, a Mary Kay, yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. um, Pyramid scheme kind uh, yeah. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say that, yeah. <laughs> but it was it felt a little bit like that. It was like, yeah. here's what you do. Yeah. Uh, become an official licensed purpose-driven church. But right. the the phrase that I heard taken away from some of our other pastors that was repeatedly said over and over was that healthy things grow. Yeah. Healthy yeah, things right. grow. And so the new measurement of church health became numbers. Right. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's the, like, right. it's the capitalist frame right. applied yeah. to, to church life. And it was so funny to see that mingle with this yeah. charismatic background too, where right, you felt right. like we're losing our place of relevance. Right. Maybe we're not really being effective in reaching people. Right. So maybe the goal is just to reach yeah. people, right. you know, just to get yeah. them, to get right. them in the get yep. them in the building. So you talk about Driscoll, or I'm sorry, you talk about um, Rick Warren. You also mentioned a couple other people, which I thought, man, that was an interesting pairing uh, in this, in highlighting the need to be authentic, right? That's yeah. the next thing. You have to show yourself to be authentic in this, in this age. And you talk about uh, a couple other examples. Oh, Yeah. Lead me into that. I'm, I'm trying to think who else, who oh, yeah. else I, uh, I, Mark, I referenced. Uh, Mark Driscoll was yeah. one, and uh, Nadia Bowles, uh, is it yeah. Weber or Weber? Yeah, oh, it's true. There it is. Yeah. And they're yeah. like, you know, in two different streams attempting to do the same thing. It feels like the pastor has yes. to present themselves as not just the, the policeman of politeness, right? but as the That's bastion right. of authenticity. Yeah. Right, in, in a very kind of different different way. So you have you have uh, kind of uh, Nadia Boltz Weber back in the day, who is um, you know very mainline. Her theology is very kind of Lutheran and almost Orthodox Lutheran, but she's kind of tatted out, and so it becomes a way. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to um, be offensive anyway, but yeah. it, it it really almost and she would say this herself became like the poster child for the denomination. Like we're really stuffy, but look at we got we have that pastor who's yeah you know, really authentic and, um, and, and really unique. And then Driscoll on the other side, which, you know, and I guess I use him, um, in a sense of like thinking of, uh, the Jonathan Edwards kind of pastor where you, it was really important as the educated person to be the polite person and politeness was a sign if your life was turned directly towards God or not. Uh, but that takes on its own kind of, especially inside the age of authenticity and the Nova effect it can almost take on a negative kind of form. And Driscoll, I think, you know, I mean, this is overstated, but in some ways becomes, and in his heyday at least, was kind of like pastor as WWF wrestler. You know what I mean? Like he was he was willing to go to battle with you. And he was, you know, uh, he, was, he was willing to be impolite uh, as a way towards authenticity. And, and that is just an interesting transition that um, what becomes authentic in some ways becomes impolite after the countercultural movement. And, yeah. 
and he kind of takes that on. Like it becomes the, and we've been living with this for a long time, but the anti-hero becomes really important to us because the anti-hero is often more authentic than the hero, you know? Yeah, we want Deadpool, not Superman. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Well, if I can throw one last question as we wrap yeah. up today, Andrew, you know, it, it seems like um, pastors today who maybe feel this pressure to be authentic and yet able to grow a church like a successful CEO grows a business, it feels maybe ironic, almost ironically that they have to sell their authenticity well. Do you see these factors and this pressure that pastors face to somehow be uh, effective, to be relevant, to not be obsolete in their culture, in our culture, contributing to burnout, moral failures, even mental health crises? And what do you think can be done about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely do. And, it, and I know we didn't intend this, but it kind of is a nice segue with the last question to point to volume three of this, this series that in the book that will be out in, uh, oh, sometime in early 2021, and it'll be called The Congregation in the Secular Age. Great. And, Looking um, forward to it. Yeah. And what that book really, really points at more than just a, an ugly plug for that book is it, it really <laughs> answers your question, which I do think the major issue is burnout and, and the mental health issues that come along with that. Uh, but one of the, for me, is the one I've been reading a lot, who I think is the, one of the best interpreters of Taylor is this German thinker named Hartmut Rosa. And Rosa um, wrote his dissertation on Taylor and then has done a lot of interesting stuff with him. But his whole theory is that what modernity actually is, is the continuing speeding up of time and that things just keep going faster and faster and faster. And part of my worry is that when we enter into this and do exactly like what you're saying, where the pastor has to somehow be the CEO, that you have to worry about resource accruing and the fear of depleting resources, and you only have value if you're relevant, that you just actually are called to go faster, to try to accrue more. Um, and it really is a misguided sense of what is a good congregation and even what is a good life and what are what do people living a good life look like inside of your congregation. But he absolutely thinks it leads to a deep kind of sense of time famine that we all have. And that leads to burnout. And this becomes one of the major issues. Um, and there's a, there's a uh, French thinker uh, named... Uh, Alan Ernberg, which doesn't sound like a very French name, but he, uh, he has this, this really great book called The Wariness of the Self. And his argument is that in late modernity, the kind of mental ailment we de deal with is depression. And depression has you know, multiple different sources clinically and things like that. But he wants to kind of say philosophically why depression becomes so endemic in our time is because we feel this utter freedom um, and yet utter responsibility to curate our own selves. And depression is the exhaustion of having to keep up with your own curation of yourself. It's actually in the, in the, the direct wow. translation from French is the fatigue of being yourself, oh, um, which wow. is a really, I think, profound assertion. But I think that also is a danger that can be transposed into the congregation is that we all feel like the church needs to change. We have to change. We're in a new time. We have to change, change. And you're, as a pastor, you're changed to, you know, get more relevant, to get more resources. And you can actually thrust your congregation into depression, that they're already really exhausted people. And to say we need to change actually in, at one level or another says we need to do more. Um, we need to do something different that's more. And um, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's just pure happenstance that at this moment where we all know uh, the church needs to change, that many congregations can't find the energy to change. And um, and so I think there's something kind of uh, significant in that. But I think you're absolutely right, is that 
when you either are the um, Renaissance Festival person or you need to be the CEO, uh, depression and burnout are really close by. And so this does become a spiritual, a major spiritual issue. Well, Andy, thanks so much for the time today. You know, uh, this was just a blast. And, you know, with you being in the Twin Cities, we, maybe we have to do this in, in person some, some other time. Yeah, um, I, would, I would enjoy that. But uh, everyone, go ahead and, and check out in the links uh, in this description. I provided links to Dr. Andrew Root's website where you can uh, pick up his books. You definitely want to p- pick out. I, I mean, I texted a bunch of friends over the past few weeks saying, hey, you got you to gotta read this book. New one coming out. You said in potentially in January. Is that right? Yeah, some, I'm, I'm, you know, I should yeah. know this. That the, <laughs> yeah. the, the slick thing would be to know when it That's was coming right. out. But in the first quarter of be the 2021, theologian as CEO too, right? <laughs> there you go. That's right. That's marketer. Yeah. That's right. Well, thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation today with Dr. Andrew Root. Go out and pick up Andy's book. You can find it uh, in the link. There's a link in the description of this podcast in the show notes. Go out and pick that up. It's it's just a great, really, really helpful book. So many more profound insights. I mean, we could have done a 10-part series. We barely scratched the surface with uh, with unpacking some of the concepts in this book. So go check that out. Hey, I just want to thank all of the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. You know, we had this drive to get to 300 patrons, and we came up short of that this summer. Um, but I'm still, I'm so thankful for all the new people that have jumped in to support this podcast and to support the work that I'm doing to just really give away free theological, philosophical education to anybody with an internet connection to host these high-level conversations like the one we had today with, you know, a professor at Luther Seminary. And you get to sit in and essentially on a, a dialogue with, with the professor that you're, you're not paying big tuition bucks for. And that you can do this while you're doing the dishes and mowing the lawn or, you know, running on a treadmill somewhere. This is like the ideal thing that I wanted to do, and I can't do it without the support of people like Micah, Justin T, Paul S, Stephen M, Sarah R, BJ, Sean C, Josie, Eli C, Michael H, Luke H, Tim K, Paul R. Those of you, thank you to all of you in the Theology 201 level of support. And thank you to the rest of you in the Deep Talks Patreon community. If you want to become a member and support this podcast, and support the work I'm doing, you can find a link in the description in the show notes of this podcast, where for as little as two bucks a month, you can get access even to additional things, uh, additional resources, bonus Q&A episodes, and there's a whole host of other rewards and perks as thank you for supporting this work that I am I'm trying to do. So thank you to all of you for doing that and for considering becoming a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. We even have group uh, forum discussions and oh man, there's just so many other fun things that happen over there if you want to go deeper into this stuff. Other ways that you can support this podcast is just by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's still the number one place people are going. Uh, to listen to and subscribe to podcasts. So if you leave a review and rate it on there, it will help other people discover it. Finally, if you want to have discussion about the things that you heard in today's podcast or any other previous episode, 
You can reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner, or you can, again, as you become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, send me a message over there or leave a comment in the forum post for today's episode. And I always respond to those. I do my best to connect and respond to people on Twitter. I'd love to hear your feedback, whether there's areas of agreement, disagreement, things you learned, things you disliked, (laughs) any of it. Reach out to me. I want to have the dialogue with you. So thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.